You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because if you can't be a Jedi Knight, a Starfleet officer, or a superhero in real life, you can do it in fiction. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Marshall Ryan Moreska, and this is episode 50, Playing in Somebody Else's Sandbox. listeners to this our 50th episode of world building for masochists and we are so excited to have 50 episodes in the bag that we decided to really roll out the barrel this time and have a madcap over the top huge panel of fantastic guests to join us this week we are going to be talking about world building in someone else's sandbox when you are not building your world from scratch, but instead get to dive into the creation of other folks, of many other folks, when you are writing for IP. So we have a fantastic array of writers here who are writing for a bunch of different IPs that I know many of our listeners are fans of. So our amazing panel of brilliant, wonderful writers here are... Star Wars writers Delilah Dawson and Mike Chen, Star Trek writer David Mack, and X-Men writer Teeny Howard, who we are all thrilled to have join us. Like if you could see if you could see our faces of how thrilled we are. <laughs> Absolutely. It's like large margin, Pee Wee Herman. It's just really You're beaming. It's like it's Christmas morning. It is. It is exactly that. I I fangirl. I fangirl loud and proud. <laughs> well, I would love to hear a little bit more from each of you about your work, about the IP that you write for, and also any original work that you are working on, any projects that we should be aware of. I am going to pick on Mike because he's been with us before, so he knows the drill. So Mike, if you'd like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more. Hi, I'm Mike Chen, and I was thrilled to hit the pinnacle of my career by writing for Star Wars last year, and nothing's going to eclipse that. Um, I was in the From a Certain Point of View, the Empire Strikes Back anthology, where I got to define a moment in canon about Emperor Palpatine and Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. I can't believe they let me do that. Um, and in my other writing life, I uh, have several novels. My most recent is called We Could Be Heroes, which is about superhero friends and that is not IP superheroes. They are completely my own. And that one sounds absolutely amazing, Mike. It's behind me somewhere. I can't find it. <laughs> <laughs> I literally have it. Well, while Delilah's hunting, speaking, <laughs> of superhero, speaking of superheroes, I'm going to tap Teeny Howard to introduce next. Hi, Cass. Uh, hi. hi. Thanks for having me. And I just, I wanted to say in case you guys have, no one else has recorded uh, since it happened, congratulations on the Hugo nom. That is such a huge accomplishment, you guys. Uh, huge congratulations. I'm so honored to be here. Um, Thank you so much. Uh, I, my, most of the world building I do these days is in the Marvel Comics 616 universe, uh, mostly over in the X-Men office where if you're currently an X-Men reader, you might know that they have been building a new society called Krakoa. And so a lot of my time in, in, in world building investment energy goes into that. 
these days, but I have written uh, a few books of my own, like a couple graphic novels, one called Euthanauts, one called Assassinistas that are very much, you know, our world with something else on top of them uh, projects. But then I'm also, you know, I can't talk in details about it, but I'm also in the progress of writing my first novel, which is a whole new kind of world building experience. So it's been fun to, uh, to be digging into things from the ground up from that. And I know that well, I think everyone else on this call, it's like, has written a novel. <laughs> I think I'm the first, I think I'm the only one on here that is a working on my first novel. So I'm excited to be here with you guys. But um, yeah, mostly I do X-Men stuff these days. They're fun to play with. We all like them, right? <laughs> it's a very exciting time in the X-Universe and it's, it's awesome. And I think T might be our first graphic novel author guess well, Delilah. overall maybe yeah, Delilah's, Delilah's, right. Delilah's done some as well that's right but air now i'm not certain we wanted to have a variety of media as well as um ip universes to play in. so we're glad that we have guests that can show us all kinds of different aspects of well and it's super cool for me building. because i'm a big star wars and star trek fan so i'm like fans of like delilah's and stuff too so this is exciting <laughs> <laughs> Well, Delilah, would you care to jump in and tell us a little bit about you and your work? Sure. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm mainly known for my Star Wars work, which is Phasma and uh, Galaxy's Edge Black Spire. Fill us some short stories and the fact pop. From a certain point of view, we just call them fact pop because it's so many words, but the from a certain point of view books. Um, and I've written some Star Wars adventure comics too. Um, but I guess my IP journey started like my, my first book series was like steampunk vampire Victorian dark carnival romance. And somehow they tapped me when Kindle Worlds came out. Uh, I don't know if you all remember Kindle Worlds, but it was basically where Amazon got permission and some IP to let us normal people write stories in them. Uh, so they wanted to like legitimize this by having established writers write stuff. So I got to write a Shadow Man novel. So it was like my first IP and uh, super exciting writing like 23,000 words in nine days or something because deadlines is a big thing on IP I'm sure we'll all talk about. Uh, but yeah, so I've written Star Wars, um, I wrote a Firefly graphic novel, um, I've written uh, comics in the worlds of Adventure Time, Labyrinth, Rick and Morty, Spider-Man, something else I'm probably forgetting. But yeah, X-Files. So... Yes, that's it, X-Files. I was like, I know there's something else that's dark and not pink. Yes, X-Files, thank you, Mike. Which, yeah, talk about a dream come true. Yeah, that's the thing about IP, like, it's always, you're like, oh my god, I want this so much! Oh, and a Hellboy short story. And I have an Alien, Alien versus Predator short story that'll be out this year in an anthology. So, like, I, I live for this IP. It's so much fun. Well, David, last but not least. Nice. David, last but not least. Uh, well, let's see. I uh, started out writing for Star Trek on television in the 1990s. Uh, my first story sale of any kind was actually to Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And then after writing for the shows, I transitioned over to writing for the books uh, at this point, I've written for Star Trek in short fiction, novels, comic books, uh, TV. I've written for games. I've written reference materials. And uh, I've got a new gig coming up, which will still be Star Trek, but something very different. But the contract isn't signed, so I can't talk about that. Uh, but I've also worked for other IP. I've worked for Wolverine. Uh, I've written for the 4400, for Farscape. Um 24, the Jack Bauer series. So uh, I've worked for a variety of IP, and I've also done some original work. I had uh, an original series called Dark Arts, published by Tor. That was kind of a secret history, dark fantasy thing. 
mages behind the scenes of real world history, mid 20th century type stuff. And uh, I just finished up a, a new novel for Star Trek that'll be out at the end of this year. Star Trek had been doing something kind of interesting with its IP over the last 20 years. After Star Trek Nemesis, they had a whole run of novels with interlinked continuity, and we were allowed, those of us working on the novels, to develop the stories and the characters' lives beyond where they ended uh, at the end of like the, the TV series of DS9, Voyager, TNG, and we got to carry their stories forward. And then, you know, we've been doing this for about 20 years, and along comes Star Trek Picard, and blows all of our 20 years of continuity out of the water. Uh, so, working with my friend Dayton Ward and fellow author James Swallow, uh, with whom I've worked many times before, we devised a trilogy called Star Trek Coda, which is coming out at the end of this year. And I've, I've written the final volume of the, uh, the trilogy. Dayton wrote book one called Moments Asunder. James wrote book two called The Ashes of Tomorrow, and I wrote book three called Oblivion's Gate. And we're basically giving fans who have been with us on this 20-year experiment in shared continuity a definitive closure, a, a sense of, you know, the story has built to something. It's all been for a reason. We're not just going to let it fall apart in the middle of things and just be abandoned. So we are, we're going to try and give fans a, a sense that this all was about something. That's super exciting to hear just because I've the, the sheer amount of post DS9, post Voyager, post CNG books that are on my shelf right now is immense. There have been a lot of them. <laughs> so I have been I have been following that a lot. And because there was that sense of like, there's probably not going to be any television ever again. Who knows? So let's just go crazy with the books, which I absolutely adored. And so there then when like Picard started or and also uh, Discovery started, everyone's going, I'm like, okay, that doesn't actually contradict what they set up in, in the novel. So it's good. It's good. It's fine. <laughs> so I'm already entirely blown away by everyone on the show today. And I'm sure we're going to get into a lot of nitty gritty craft and specifics. But the first thing that I wanted to know before we dive in is what do you love about world building? Whether it's your own world, whether you're playing an IP, what gives you joy? Um, I'll start. Um, I, uh, I really like anthropology. Like, I think it's really interesting, but real world anthropology is sometimes like kind of unethical. <laughs> so I really like taking some of the like applied knowledge from some of like what we've discovered through human anthropology and applying it to things. But like the backwards version of that is like, I like the why, right? Like you know not just why because it looks cool but like you know why why like when we say well you got to get up and go to work in the morning well why when why, when, did, when did we decide that you know um i mean even things like if you look i really love like prehistory i really love looking way way back um when we weren't thinking of why you know when the cognitive revolution was still new to us um when the idea that we weren't animals was still forming in our minds i mean you look Literally 40,000 years ago, before there were Homo sapiens, Neanderthals were putting flowers in the graves of their dead. Why? That, that to me, is what world building is about. It's the, what does this culture want? What are their values? And what comes of that? And how does it affect their everyday? Um, I used to think I didn't like world building because I was like, I don't want to sit down and come up with magic systems. I want to write a book. 
Uh, and I know that's like the reverse of like a lot of writers. Um, and I respect you guys. You guys. Uh, <laughs> but like for me, I was like, I don't want to do that. And then I figured out that world building for me was just something different. I had to figure out the kind of characters and the kind of stuff I wanted to write and then think about the world that built those values and the world that built those people and how it came to be that way. I love it. You're our people. <laughs> I'm so glad. <laughs> well, when you said that, the the WFM hosts all looked at Mike, who has been on the podcast before, and his episode was The Reluctant World Builder, and it was a lot about that reverse engineering, the world building. So you are in most excellent company. That's excellent to hear, Mike. Yeah, I am, I am a reluctant world builder. I, I got to go listen to that episode now. I'm excited to check it out. Yeah, I, I actually found it... Um... Like fan fiction and writing IP is like way more fun because the bones are already set. And then for me, I I mean, like the hardest part is like the initial world building because I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) So it's like everything feels like a stick figure. Um, And then everything's a statement. Yeah. And it's like once once the foundation is set, then it's like, oh, I get to play around in this. And that's how writing an IP feels. You know, there's like that sort of there's freedom, but there's also structure already. Whereas, like, with my own world building, I'm, like, I talk about in the episode where it's, like, it's, like, pulling teeth, and I just have to fill in the details at the end, so. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, like, we all, you know, know as writers, it's sometimes it's easier to comment on someone else's stuff than it is to write your own, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, and, like, yeah. that's, in a lot of ways, writing IP is a commentary on the existing canon. Like, that's, you have to have a perspective. You can't just write fan fiction for fun. That's the difference between, I think, what we do in fan fiction is you have to bring a perspective. Well, the biggest difference um, between and us and fan fiction is that we have to answer to the licensor, to the people who own the copyright. Oh, well, I mean, obviously, that's the biggest difference. <laughs> I mean, otherwise, I mean, like, fanfic me. writers come up with brilliant stuff, just as brilliant as anything we do. Sure. I mean, I came up in, in fan fiction. I was a little fan fiction writer for years. Um, and, and for me, the biggest difference between what I used to do when I was writing fan fiction and what I do now is that I, when I did fan fiction, I was just writing what I felt like because I thought it would be fun to mm-hmm. see. And now I think about serving a larger story and a greater purpose and serving writers that come after me and serving the writers I work with now and serving the stories to come before um, while also saying... I need to have my own story that stands alone without serving these things. It's kind of that careful dance. Yeah. I think what I really love about writing for IP is that, like you said, the structure is there, but you get to sort of have a conversation with other writers through the material that you're working on. Like you said, you got to think about the other writers who've come before you, the writers who are going to follow you. But what I love is that when you're working with something like star Wars or star Trek, the world has so many dramatic questions that are left unanswered just as the, you know, as a consequence of building backstory. World building inevitably raises questions that there are not time to answer in the canon material. And one of the great things about writing IP, especially for Star Trek that I've found, is the opportunity to dig in and say, well, what would that mean behind the scenes? You know, what would be the repercussions of that that we didn't get to see in the episode or in the movie. Uh, working with uh, an editor named Marco Palmieri, who's now at Serial Box. I think they just changed their name to Realm. Uh, and with authors Dayton Ward and Kevin Dilmore. Uh, I've, over several years, I developed a series called Star Trek Vanguard, uh, which was set during the same time period as the original series. And the idea was to have this alternate perspective on that era of star trek history to say the things that we saw happen in the episodes had effects that you know 
echoed throughout the Federation or had other effects on other people. And some of the things that happened on screen were actually predicated by things that happened off screen. So we tried to build this weird parallel history, sort of showing how things that we didn't see caused what we saw on screen and how things we saw on screen then had uh, carry-on effects. So I guess that's what I love about the idea of world building is that you get to take an established framework that has a working set of rules and expectations, but then you get to build it out and you get to extrapolate and ask questions uh, about how would this work? Uh, you know, a government, a military organization, how does the civilization as a whole function? Uh, and that to me is where really the fun lies with IP. And I... I think if you think of world building, um, if you think of a world akin to um, a language, you know, it's not only the words, but the idioms, the slang, the inflection, the timing, the volume. So for me, when you're writing in IP, it's like taking a language that is already native to you, that you already speak, that you know the rhythms of, and playing with it. Whereas when you're building your own world, you're having to build that language and decide which direction the inflection goes and how loud or quiet it is and what all the subtleties are and how different things are uh, kind of put together. So, you know, with world building, like I, if I'm coming up with a character, I have to spend a lot of time thinking about their backstory, the lies they tell themselves, what they want, what they need, what's about to jump out of the closet at them. But I can put words in Han Solo's mouth just like that, like nothing, because I've heard him in my head since I was a child. <laughs> So it's like, it's my, Star Wars is my native language. Um, and I, I spoke pretty fluent adventure time too. It was so much fun to slip into. So in regards to my own worlds though, or, or world building as a whole, so I, I have synesthesia. So all of my little brain neurons are crossed. So everything has a feeling and a flavor and a taste. If you name a number, I can tell you what color it is. If it's nice or mean, or, you know, I don't like the number. If five is a beautiful azure blue and it's an <laughs> asshole. Like I don't like five. I won't wake up at like a 45. I don't want to do anything when the clock's on a five. So I have all of these little feelings. So when I'm starting to feel out of world, I'm thinking about what color is it? Does it have sparkles or is it wet or is it dry and dusty? And, and it's, it's almost like, like making a, a painting, you know, you're going to get a very different painting. If somebody gives you, you know, say red, white, and black, and those are the only three colors you can make a painting out of, that's going to have a completely different tone from if somebody gives you, you know, yellow, green, and white. Um, I don't know, the, the flavor is what's gets. I really geek out of a world building because I love those little sensory issues, the, the taste, the flavor, the sense, like what I want you to feel when you're in that world where, you know, if you're... Uh, if you're on Hoth, things are sparkly and white and your eyes are kind of blurry. But if you're on Tatooine, things are, are dusty and gritty. And, you know, you're going to speak with more emphasis than, you know, you would on, say, Naboo, where you would be very gracious and calm and there's flowing, flowing fabrics. I love how experiential that is, that it translates to the experience of the characters and that experiences that for the reader and it translates that to the, the reader's experience as well the view of world building isn't just you know marshall we love your spreadsheets marshall um but that you also have that experiential tactile part <laughs> spreadsheets smedsheets i only use those for taxes <laughs> i'm team spreadsheet no but in that respect it's almost like code switching you know uh, you know learning to speak the language of a given uh, intellectual property, a given universe. The language you speak in Star Trek is not the same one you'd speak in Star Wars. And with, even within Star Trek, you've got Klingons, but then you've got Vulcans, two different dialects. And by the same token, different 
people can speak the same language with different accents, which I think is where you get all the different writers working together within that same shared IP language. They're still bringing themselves and their own backgrounds to it. I love that. That's a fantastic metaphor. I adore it. So we've hit the things that we love about world building. What about some of the unique challenges to writing an IP? Well, I can tell you right now that, um, like for Star Wars, say, you you don't write the book until you have a significant outline that's been okayed by 20 people. (laughs) Um, And even once you get there, uh, you know... Normally, say you send your book off to the editor, and your editor has comments in the. I'm gesturing to the side of the, your Word document, obviously, for people who can't see this. You have comments in the side from your editor, and maybe if your editor has an assistant or a junior editor who's assisting, you might have two people comments. Basma arrived, and it had 17 people's comments, and it crashed Word on my computer because there were layers on layers where, like, I would just say like such and such a ship, and then like three guys would get into it. <laughs> And like nested, nested, nested about why the Kuat drive yards weren't active for those years. So it would have had to have been of a Celestin ship. No, no, no. The Celestins were. Co- so yeah, there's a there's a lot of commentary and there's a lot of people with their thumb in the pie that want things done a certain way. Trying to compose a book like inside an internet forum, it must feel like. <laughs> That's what that sounds like. Yeah, definitely. I think like one of the struggles I deal with. Um, in the X-Men room is that, you know, we have limited real estate. Like one thing when you start writing comics that you don't really think about maybe when you write prose is you have like physical, visual real estate on a page. You know, you're limited with what you can show and what you can do. And there are certain rules to the language to, you know, making a comic make sense when people read it. Um, so, you know, you have to be really careful to not overworld build unless you're using it in ways that like, are there and it's okay to have things like run in the background right like we are super collaborative in the x-men office and we like you know we always are talking and bouncing ideas off and sometimes we come up with ideas like that for lack of a better word we were like we don't have room for it you know like we're each we each only have 20 pages a month or for those of us that are writing more than one book 40 pages a month to do two book you know like you might just not have what in a novel might be a paragraph to describe something you just don't have a space in a comic. So if you overbuild yourself and you're not, I mean, and this is a risk in novels too, if you're, if you're building without story and you're not moving the story forward, right? And you're just like decorating the same, you're just decorating rooms in a house, but you're not giving anyone an incentive to walk through the house <laughs> is, you know, I think a common thing that it can, it can be hard to balance the desire to world build with the the get up and go of the story ideally you're doing both at the same time right you're running through the house and you're hanging things up as you go because they look great like (laughs) so i'll say that um like even though i I only have one star wars story published i did uh, um i was asked a proposal for several other fairly notable ips and it fizzled out for you know one reason or the other but I wrote these very detailed proposals and went back and forth with editors. And during that process, I found like one of my biggest challenges was um, I had to rein myself in from from just doing the like, oh, this would be cool if because ultimately like it doesn't serve you know the story too much. And I find that that process is so easy for me to do when I'm editing my own stuff because it's like. Um, I don't love it, <laughs> you know, um, and I think we probably all feel that way about our own novels at some point. We're like, I don't love it. Cut it. Get rid of it. 
Um, <laughs> but you know, with with character X or character Y, that like I thought, oh, this would be really cool. I've always wanted to see this on screen or in a comic or whatever. And now I have this chance. So here's you know this beat that would be perfect for it. And then um, you talking with the editors, you're like, yeah, that doesn't really quite work. That was just me wanting to play in my you know with my toys. Uh, so I, I think like this. It's harder for me to almost self-edit uh, because I do love the property so much. I just have one sort of short anecdote. One of the strangest things about writing an IP, especially if you're new to that IP, is you can't always read the mind of the licensor or the editor. And sometimes there are little rules you don't know about until it gets brought to your attention. And that happened to me when I was writing my 24 novel. Uh, things sailed through just fine with the tour editorial office. And then we got the notes back from the licensor from Fox. And it's interesting, you know, in the 24 universe, you can have explosions, you can have torture, you can have people waterboarded, you can have people shot, you can do all kinds of things, but nobody can blaspheme. Blaspheming is not allowed in the realm of 24. <laughs> And I'd never really thought about it, but I realized if you go back and you watch like all eight seasons or whatever of the show, yeah, because it was on Fox, that was a hard rule. No blasphemy. So people can, you know, you can use all sorts of other expletives, but you can't use any blaspheming. So I, I thought that was pretty fun. And then the other thing was they got really picky about saying, well, you know, you, you really shouldn't mention any brand names of things like cars or specific weapons or this or that or the other thing. And then I had to point them at the first novel in the series they had published with that publisher. And I said, really? Because if we look at the first novel you approved, we have this, we have this, we have this. We have 18 different models of car. We have 16 different models of firearm. We have three different types of uh, plastic explosive, all of them trademarks, by the way. And it's like being a lawyer. That One of the things you learn about being a, a writer of uh, somebody else's IP is sometimes you have to think like a lawyer and make your case when you get notes back. You're absolutely right. Yes. No, I'm sorry. I, 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 please keep on. I didn't want to interrupt you. I just had to ex <laughs> No, no. You, If you've got something, jump on it. Yeah, no, I, I was talking to a friend about this the other day, and I used the exact same phrase. I was like, I think when sometimes when you get asked to pitch on IP, it's like writing an essay or making a case where you're like, here is my argument. Here are some, here's some canon from the text to back up my argument. And also, I have to write it well enough that it's like a good that it's good to read, right? Yeah, it's got to be a good story, but you've also got to have citations. Like when I do my outlines for Star Trek, there'll be little parentheticals that say, "This is per this episode. Uh, this is per this movie." You can see the reference for this at uh, time reference seventeen forty in the movie First Contact, stuff like that. Definitely, I'm gonna bring that up with my. Um composition students the next time they're asking why do i have to have this kind of thing same thing <laughs> be like Cass. well well let me tell you some real world examples of people who have to use citations just don't tell them my name because if they know i gave them homework they won't buy any of my books so. <laughs> i'll just say very famous fans, people Cass. watch out now <laughs> so i feel like that lawyerly angle perhaps leads us into one of our other questions which is how each of you got involved in writing for the franchises you've you've worked for and worked with what's the process like in so much as as you can give us those details and we're not asking for industry secrets and things that you can't talk about but i think that's something many readers of ip wonder about how do you enter 
that world? And what's it like transitioning from being a fan to being responsible for, for creating things for other fans? I'll start because I'm probably the newest at this. Um, so I have the least experience, but the most blabbing about it on social media. <laughs> um, when I signed with my agent, uh, he asked me, like, what are my career goals? And one of my career goals was write for Star Wars. <laughs> and he, um, he, you know, as he got to know the different editors for various IPs, um, he talked with the Lucasfilm team because they, they cover like a whole bunch of IPs. Um, and so he made it very well known that, that I wanted to do it. Um, I shouted about it online and thankfully Delilah <laughs> encouraged me to do that because she's a good pal like that. I may have brought you up over a hotel breakfast <laughs> at some point or another. Like we, we always like, when we like people, we like their writing. Like you, you tell your editors like, Hey, if you're looking yeah, for it was, somebody. It, I, I, I I hate to say that, like, you know, there's a bit of that, the, you know, networking and your agent has to know the team and, you know, other writers have to support you. But I'm pretty sure that there's a lot about that because they're very busy and they're working on extreme deadlines. Mm -hmm. So having people in your corner to, to get you there, um, I think that's that's really key. But you also have to kind of, you know, put that intention out there, like with the other IPs that um, that fizzled. Um, you know, it, it, I let my my agent know that like, yeah, I would love to do that and see what's available. And so he kicked some tires and we wrote some proposals and stuff. And so I think it's just about um, once you get the established in the industry, um, use whatever means necessary to try to get on their the forefront of their minds, which which I did very loudly on Twitter. I've tried that tactic with Star Wars. It hasn't worked. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I've gotten that question a lot from comics fans, um, especially because like learning how to write comics is kind of mysterious. Um, but the thing they always tell people in comics is make comics, which like sounds like a BS answer, but really it's like, you know, you and yourself, if you, you know, if, even if you can't draw, like sometimes drawing crappy is part of it. <laughs> There's a lot of great comics with like deliberately, you know, uh, quote unquote poorly done art that's you know fantastic if it tells the story that's what it needs to do right um or you and a friend or whatever like make comics like read comics learn how they work and 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 because the the job of telling stories um about superheroes is really not the job of just telling stories about superheroes it's writing them in a, into a comic book narrative and that's that's not really the same thing right um there's there's you know i think there's real value to like you know learn learn to write your own stuff if you want to write other stuff because like that's really what people often see that makes them want to reach out and say hey i want you to write for star wars or x-men or whatever is because they see that you've got it in you to bring a unique perspective to things right and like because like when, at least in my experience, when editors are hiring, like, editors are often fans, too. And they have, like, a basic fan idea of what might be good here, right? Like, fans want to see this character have a win because we just saw them get their butt kicked at the end of this movie. But they have a lot of fans, so we want to do a story or a book or a comic run or whatever about them coming back and, and getting back on their feet and getting their spaceship back or whatever, right? And, like, 
they know that. Like, we all know that. Like, we all know that would be cool. What editors are looking for is the person that has the unique perspective and mindset to give you the really interesting, juicy, compelling version of that, that we all pick up and page turn anyway, even though we know the rules of narrative and we know it's the story of so-and-so getting their spaceship back or whatever. Like, we totally know what it is and we're, we know we're going to get what we want the skill is not coming up with cool things for your favorite character the skill is in the storytelling so like if you want to write good stories get good at storytelling write your own stuff take your notes go read books that you like and then try to write stuff like that you know it's i hate saying my advice is work but my advice is work <laughs> <laughs> Um, my, my story is a super weird one in that uh, it was, like, you can't, I think for comics and also IP, I think of it like um, a fire slug, it burns its own trail, and you can't follow that trail because it's burned the trail behind it. <laughs> um, so we can't tell you how to replicate the success, we can just tell you, like, mm -hmm. how we got there for the most part. So like I said, um, my first book came out the next year I was invited to write for Shadow Man for Kindle Worlds. So I had never read Shadow Man, so I went out to the comics book store and bought every single issue of Shadow Man. I was like, yeah, I can totally do this. Um, and then in, um, I think it might have been 2015, but my friend Chuck Wendig tweeted that he wanted to write a Star Wars book. And they, they asked him to write a Star Wars book like the next day. And within a year he had written a Star Wars book. So I was like, okay, I can do that. So I tweeted, I would also like to write a Star Wars book, and they did not call me back that day. Um, so I asked my agent to reach out and send them some of my relevant works, and I asked my friends who'd written for Star Wars to put in a couple of uh, good words for me, and um, then I was in Walmart and I saw this cupcake with the Darth Vader ring in it. This was back when I could eat gluten, and I was like, okay, I'm going to buy this cupcake, and when I get to write Star Wars, I'm going to eat it. I'm going to put it in the freezer until I get to write Star Wars. And like two weeks went by and I was like, this black magic doesn't work, screw you. And I ate the whole cupcake in like one big spiteful bite where I was like, this is never going to happen, I don't care. And I was like, ah, like the cookie monster didn't, you know. Yeah, and I still have the ring. But like that week I got the, the call about the Zine Natal and the, the Force of Weekends or the Perfect Weapon short story, which was That's my awesome. first Star Wars work. So That's it awesome. kind of works. Black magic absolutely works. Uh, so it could have works. been the networking. <laughs> That's the moral of the story. <laughs> black magic could have been the Black networking. magic always works. Especially bakery magic. Right? And so, and then because um, I had to read uh, The Last Jedi script in order to write Phasma, it turned out that IDW needed someone to write a Rose Tico story, and I was the only female comic book writer who had read the script. And nobody else could read the script, so they, they sent me a message and were like, hey, how, do you, how would you like to write a comic? So, um, yeah, that's how I started writing for IDW, and they liked me, and then they invited me to write uh, Spider-Man, Marvel Action Spider-Man, um, and some other stuff. So a lot of it was just being in the right place at the right time, knowing the right people, or like I... My first comic was called Lady Castle. It was a creator-owned one with Boom Studios. And I was out at dinner with the con with my editors, as one does, and one of them mentioned that she was working on a labyrinth um, anthology, and I was like, I will give you one of my children, just like Labyrinth, but I won't ask for it back if you'll let me write a story for you. thematic pitch, yeah. And that's why <laughs> yeah. I only have two children instead of three, but I do have a Labyrinth short story with a lot of, like, Jared Crush, so I'm really proud. Anybody else have a Jared, a, a Jared Crush story? Not a published one. My daughter has a Jared action figure with the codpiece. <laughs> Oh my god, there's an action figure? There is, yeah. 
kind of like need that for now. children. <laughs> <laughs> Not for six-year-olds, but we gave it to her because she loves library. <laughs> it's just like a piece of black duct tape over his crotch. It's like, look when you're sixteen. I don't, I don't have a Jareth crotch story, but speaking of spandex crotches, I do have the weird story of I've written, um, I've written both comics for both WWE and also Glow, like the Netflix show. So I've written, I've written a lot of wrestling comics, but also wrestlers that are portrayed by real people, which was really fun and interesting because um, with the Glow cast, they were like really, really sweet, and they all were like tagging me on Instagram, like, "Oh my gosh, she wrote a story about us," and like, you know, tagging the artist, like, "Oh my gosh, look how cute she drew us," and they were like, "Look, we're like wrestler girls, yay!" And it was super fun. Um, and then when I wrote for WWE, I remember being scared because I wrote a story about, um, and if you're not a wrestling fan, this will make no sense to you, but Triple H and Stephanie McMahon, who are like the kind of like the crown prince and evil princess of. <laughs> Of, uh, of of professional wrestling and they're you know they're they're characters but they're also you know played by real people and the licensor said well hold on they have to um they have to read the story that they're in personally to personally approve their appearance and I'm like okay these people here's here's the two things I know about these people they are hugely muscular and they love to fight and they are going to be reading <laughs> how I wrote them. So I super hope they like it and they don't come to my house and twist me into a pretzel. <laughs> and they didn't. I'm still here today, so I guess they liked it. That's so I don't have a Jareth Jared Crotch Jareth Crotch story, but um That's my span my spandex is fear. But triple H almost <laughs> kicked your butt is where we're at with that. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Like that'd be fun, I guess. That's a story too. At least if you're writing fictional IPs, you don't really have to worry about people showing up at your house and sitting on you. <laughs> Jared can sit on me, it's fine. <laughs> for better or for worse. So speaking of, I guess, expectations, you're all writing in IPs that are very popular and have huge fan bases. What is it like moving into a space where there's an established fan base that has established expectations and hopes and dreams, and knowing that those fans are out there. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I was going to say something about the notoriety of X-Men fans, but everyone, like almost everyone else in here has written for Star Wars, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I don't have... Usually on these things and comic stuff, I'm like, it's fine. I write X-Men. Everyone's like, X-Men fans, those are the intense fans, but uh, you guys write for Star Wars, so... Yeah, because Star Trek fans aren't opinionated at all. That's true. That's true. I don't know. I feel like... I was going to say, all, everyone here has written no. for one of the major franchises that has longevity, too. It's such a long fandom. All, all of them, Star, Star Trek, Star Wars, Marvel, other comics, have such a long history that some people have decades and decades of attachment to the material. I mean, my honest take on it is uh, it is not my job to get between me and every person's intimate relationship with the works that are important to them. People are going to read my work once it's out in the world and they're going to decide for themselves if it speaks to them or not. If they decide that it ruined their favorite character and they hate me and they wish my book never existed, Godspeed. You are a human on this earth and so am I. That's it. That's all I got to say about it. Like, you got their money. <laughs> that's all that matters. I mean, it's not, but not really, because like I'm a fan too, and I get it. But like, I guess the thing is, like, I'm also a writer, and I have a perspective, and the story I'm telling is important to me, and it has to be important to me, otherwise I'm not going to write it with my heart. And if it's not important to everyone, that's okay, because that's art. 
You know, if everyone liked my story, it wouldn't be art. That's true. You got to you got to write what's true to you. I mean, that and that's why they employ writers is because we bring in theory, we bring something of ourselves to our work that nobody else can. Something that's, you know, unique from that's within right. ourselves. Uh, and it works for some people. I mean, I've gotten, you know, fans who've written me glowing uh, appreciative emails and then I've gotten those who say you're terrible you never should have been allowed anywhere near Star Trek etc uh, etc et and I take that as praise either way it's like well clearly you had an emotional response <laughs> uh, but you know not everything you create is going to work for every reader and you just gotta expect that going in and you can't let yourself be constrained by trying to please everybody because you can never please everybody I think all you can really do, uh, as Tini said, is you've got to write something that you feel is true, something that has, uh, you know, has heart, uh, has something honest to it. And the rest, you just have to expect the readers are going to react to it or not. I think, too, like along those lines, you have to know what your own personal strengths and style are um because that's why they bring you on board like if mm -hmm. for anyone that i talk to involved with an ip they're going to ask me to write a character story like i'm not great at writing like spaceship battles as much as i enjoy watching them and reading them <laughs> so um i i'm just not gonna go there um so it's understanding that like i think with ip you should try to stay in your lane, like, you know, do what you can to, to add your own touches to them. But like, they asked you on board for a reason. And ultimately, uh, uh, even though we all love it and it's, it's creative and it's passion and it's fan, it's also a contract. And it's, it's different from creating your own world where, you know, you really, you know, you can stretch your wings however you want. So I think you have to respect that. Yeah, I think you, I think you're right about that too. Like, definitely I don't, I think when I was younger, it used to be like, I was so excited to be a writer that it would be like, I'll learn anything so that I can have a chance to play in this world and get my name out there. But like now, because I work, uh, my, my work schedule is so full. It's like, I, when I'm offered projects that I think are maybe really cool projects, but I just don't have a perspective. I turn them down. And it's like, it's not because I don't think it'd be fun. It's not because I'm like, oh, yeah, well, you will write, you know, five issues of someone doing backflips and exploding helicopters. Of course I can write that. Anyone can. It sounds like a blast. But I know that if I don't have the perspective, that it's not the book for me to write, you know. And, and part of, I think, having perspective is, like, knowing the canon and honoring it and being like, I do like this. I like this enough to care about it. And I care about it enough to tell you a story about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've turned down uh, gigs just because I, I've had to tell my agent or the editor, I'm sure it's a great property. I know it's got a big fan base. The book would probably sell like gangbusters, but it's not my fandom. I don't really know it, and I wouldn't be passionate about it, and the readers would be able to tell immediately if I'm not authentic about it. Like, they, they can spot uh, an imposter a mile away. If you're not really into what you're writing when you're with IP the true fans will know it and they'll call you out. <laughs> yeah, the flip side to that particular point is um, the, if you're not like I, I, I was asked for if I was interested in this one IP and I, I knew, you know, surface level stuff of it. And I started to dig into like how deep the canon goes. And I just thought like, there's no way I can do it justice. So it's like as tempted <laughs> as it was, it like, this will be super cool. I'm like I will piss off everyone and probably myself if I took this. 
Yeah, the the interesting thing about Star Wars fans, and and I'm sure it works for Star Trek too, is that uh, I mean it's a way of life. It's been for a lot of these people the defining cultural media of of their entire life. Lots of people latched on to um, whether it was the original trilogy or the prequels. Um, you know, whatever they latched onto first, had, they imprinted on it like a baby zebra. <laughs> like, that's their thing. And, and they want certain things from it that are also <sighs> informed by, you know, their particular demographic. And, uh, you know, Star Wars in particular, people get very, very passionate online mainly. Um, I, I've gotten, like, a lot of hate on Twitter, less in my email, and literally none at Star Wars Celebration. Like, I, from what I can tell, if you're the kind of person that loves it with a, a joy and a friendliness and you welcome other people to the fandom and you're willing to shell out the money for the flight and the hotel and the conference and you get to Star Wars Celebration, you're usually not the kind of person who's sitting at home, like, rage typing like the comic book guy. You're the person who loves it, like, where your love is based on love, not on hate because some people's love on Star Wars has, has a lot of hate involved in it. So like a celebration, no one's ever said a harsh word to me at all. It's just like, oh man, this is great. Oh, I love this. So, you know, I try to remember the celebration and, and forget the Twitter. That's just generally good life advice. Forget the Twitter. Um, I recently like was talking to a friend and I, I said that I think fandom, it's like... I think something about it, 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 and I say this as someone who like came up in fandom, wrote fan fiction, like, you know, that was what kept me writing as a teenager when nothing else did. So I'm a big fan of that. Um, uh, I think that really what I don't, th the problem is, is that I think there are aspects of fandom who want to place an order at a restaurant and get what they want. And I think that engaging with these IP is not like that. It's like going to like a tasting menu. Like you go to the restaurant, you know what they serve. And if you like the chef, you ask the chef to cook you a meal. And like, you're going to get what the chef serves and hopefully you'll like it. And even if you don't love it and it's not your favorite, you might be interested. Um, but I think some people have never had that experience of trusting someone to say, surprise me. And to them, it's really scary. Um, and I just wish that we could communicate that expectation better, right? Of like, this isn't Subway. Like, you're, you're, what you're doing is you're choosing to go to a restaurant and trust the chef and to eat what the chef puts in front of you. And that's okay. You're going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, there's like, also this and, aspect and, you know, where there's there's an extension to this metaphor right like some people have allergies and we try to be upfront about communicating those things and i think those metaphors stand when we talk about you know what we're putting in our books and standing behind and what we want to confront people with when they're trying to engage peaceably with fandom delilah i wanted to go back to what you said earlier you had a really interesting point that there are members of that there's fandom there's liking something, there's really engaging something, and then there's having an element of almost identity that's associated with it. And you're all writing for IPs that have a range of engagement from the fans. You know, you're writing for the in-depth lifelong fan and the person who saw a movie and thought, hey, this is fun, I'll pick up a book about it. Um, so, you know, over here as novelists, that's something that we don't really have to think about as much. We don't have that kind of range of readers. Well, I think it's interesting, you know, you, you say, you know, you write a book that has to appeal to both segments, but I think certain books, I think that I've written have been geared more toward 
the casual fan and some have been geared more toward the deep dive fan. Like the one I have coming out at the end of this year, that's for the folks who have been reading the shared literary continuity that we've been doing for 20 years. Those are your kind of hardcore Trek literary fans. Like they're specifically big into the Star Trek novels. Uh, and that's maybe one or 2% of the fandom. But for instance, a book I had out last summer uh, called More Beautiful Than Death was based on the J.J. Abrams movie version of Star Trek. Uh, and that was geared more toward just the folks who have come to Star Trek recently because of the movies, who are just looking for something fun that feels like that movie, but doesn't have like a whole lot of baggage or continuity porn, as some people like to call it. It's just a light, fast, fun adventure where the characters should sound like they sounded in the movie. The pacing of the story should feel like that breakneck pacing in a J.J. Abrams or, or Justin Lin film. And so I, I write different kinds of Star Trek books based on what we're going for. If I'm going for that light, breezy feel of J.J. Abrams, I try to emulate that. Uh, when we're doing the shared continuity stuff, that's maybe a little bit more complex continuity porn everything kind of links together and you know maybe you you know need a guide and uh, a, a program because you can't tell the players without the program but uh yeah i mean i think you can within a, a single intellectual property within a single franchise you can write more than one kind of thing you can shift you can code shift and uh tone shift from book to book yeah i think it's about you know, who's the intended audience? I, I had this uh, this one proposal where it was the project was supposed to be um, for people who uh, saw the most popular forms of the media and not necessarily like the the deep canon ones. And so they gave me they said this does not have to connect to anything. We wanted to thematically be like this version of this character um, and just have fun with it and try to hit beats that will. You know, so we can sell this to people who want to enjoy the character in book form. That was completely different from from Star Wars, where like that anthology is for deep canon people, and and like my parents, who you know they've bought all my books and they've read all my books, they had no idea what was going on in in my Palpatine story. My my dad was like, I don't understand this at all. I'm like, that's totally fine, Dad. You, you just it it goes to this moment in the movie and that's it. So I think it's you know whoever is ultimately giving you the green light on the project like that's part of the scope and and direction of it that's a really good point too also like while you were saying that i was thinking like oh yeah like especially at marvel right like i mean in other ips i've worked on before like um like in rick and morty i kind of had opportunities like this too where it's like uh there are stories where you're the editor comes to you and says, we need this, we need that, we want this series, you know, what's your concept? And then there are times like, I mean, I work at, I've been working at Marvel for like three years now, like a couple of my books now have started to become my ideas that I bothered an editor with and said, I want to write this, you know, I, I would like to do this. And it's, it's the chance to like come up with something whole cloth out of the Marvel universe or whatever, you know, not, not whole cloth, obviously, but like, without a prompt right i mean and that's it's kind of scary too because it's like it's kind of the same feeling i get when i'm working on like my novel sometimes or like, well, how do i know it's good <laughs> <laughs> and i guess that's just why we are constantly like you know taking in new material and and taking our notes and rewriting right so we can like hone our tastes and know what our know what our tastes are so we know you know this is what's good that's why it's the choice i'm making as a writer <laughs> 
Yeah, it's, it's just part of knowing the, the franchise and knowing the fans and, and communicating adequately with the editors for what they're trying to accomplish. It's like, it's like uh, Tini said, like, people who are going to pick up Rick and Morty Presents are going to be hardcore Rick and Morty fans. Like, you can't just walk into a comic book shop and pick that up and be like, oh, yeah, this makes total sense. <laughs> Um, the same thing for X-Files, like, random people do not wander into comic shops and be like, oh, an offshoot of X-Files? Who are these characters? So you get to, you know, skip all of the introductions and they're like, well, Mulder, as you know, we've been FBI agents together for 15 years. Like, you just, they're they're in the car and, and he's pulling over to see the world's largest ball of twine and she's, like, rubbing her temples. And you know it. Um, whereas with Star Wars, like, there's a possibility that a family could be in Target and a kid could see the book and go, oh, that's Phasma, I want to read this. And so, you know, for a book like that, you want to make sure that an intro reader, someone who's never read a Star Wars book, someone who has not read every canon book, um, even maybe someone who has only seen The Force Awakens could pick up that book and feel welcome to the fandom and not feel like they're being, uh, you know, you don't want that to be a closed door. You don't want it to be the, you know, sorry, nerd, you can't read this. Um, you want it to be an open door to welcome them into the fandom and into the world. <laughs> But at the same time, you have to also do that fan service to the people who read every single Star Wars book who are looking for the Easter eggs and the deep cut characters and the mentions and things. So it's a really kind of fun balance of, of trying to open the door for everybody lots of the time. I think, yeah, that's a, a good point, too, about the fan service of it. Like, for me, I just I've tried to be, be like, OK, I'm a fan, too. So there got to be other fans like me. Like, maybe if we have to do fan service, we remember to serve ourselves as fans too, right? Like, because I've definitely been there where I've been like, oh, and I guess people are going to want to see a page of this happening to this. And I'm like, well, well, hey, I'm the writer. I don't have to do anything I don't want. Like, <laughs> you know, what's how would what's the version of this that would be the coolest to me as a fan? Um, and kind of step outside myself as the writer and be my own fan who's nitpicking my work, right? <laughs> I wish that scene would have been cooler. So-and-so wouldn't have lost that fight. Whatever. So since all of you have written both in IP and have written or are working on original works, what are some of the lessons that you've pulled from world building in IP that you apply to your original work? Um, a big one for me is, like, I, th I used to be really averse to, like, pivoting off of existing structures in my original work. Like, for a pitch, it's okay to borrow... You know, like if I'm pitching someone else's IP, I can borrow, you know, the plot arc of Goodfellas or something and be like, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's Goodfellas with, you know, Jubilee or whatever. Well, now I want to read that. <laughs> right. And read that book. Right. Like, it's like that. I, <laughs> but like, at the same time, I used to like not do that with my original work. And then I kind of, after a while, was like, well, why the hell not? Like, those structures are good for us to vamp off of. Like, those those narrative rules that we we know and why you know why when we watch a movie or read a book we think we know what's going to happen next like that's a fun expectation to play with like i don't have to shy away from those i don't have to reinvent the structure of a novel to write a novel you know i can and and for whatever reason for the longest time it was like my work or my my, my ip work can be full of influences but my original work has to be like i don't know like devoid of influences or something like it had to be purely me. And I was like, well, I am my influences. They are filtered through me, you know? Um, my perspective on these things is unique in mine alone. So I've definitely learned to be less shy about borrowing from my influences for my original work, which is a good thing, I think. There is no shame in using tropes. They exist for a reason. 
Yeah, and sometimes that reason is just to backflip off of them and, and mess with someone's expectations and do something else, you know? And sometimes it's to give people exactly what they want, because that's okay to do, too. Sometimes that's just where the story has to go. I think what I've learned from Star Trek is not to let my original characters over-explain things. Uh, I think sometimes in original work, because you've got all this world building that you've spent hundreds of hours on, there's a temptation to want to explain your rationale to the reader. And I recall somebody, I think it was Gene Roddenberry, having to explain to his writers on the original Star Trek, our characters are never going to explain what a phaser does or how a tricorder works. To them, it's just the thing they use to do their job. It's not like we get into a car and have to explain what a combustion engine does or how the gear shift works. It just does. It says treat the you know, specific objects that are part of our, our universe the way you would any ordinary tool. You don't over-explain things. They do what they do. We see them in action, and that's all we need to know. Now, sometimes that's not necessarily true. Like if you're developing a magic system, maybe you do need to establish the rules just so that, you know, the reader knows that you're not just making things up out of, you know, thin air. But once you've got the rules in place, you don't need to reiterate them every time. Like once you've got it down, just let things happen. Yeah, that's a really good point. And also as writers, you know, there's a, we, we also know that there's a difference between getting into a car and me turning to you and saying, so here's how a car works and the difference between you. If you do need to explain it, like, you know, what's going on? Like, I think the transmission's not working. What the hell does a transmission do? It's the part that does this. Like, you know, you can, you can, it's like, as writers, we know that like the best way to explain these world building aspects that we do need to explain is not, uh... You know, not the as you know, Bob. Does. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, as you know, <laughs> I'm just cracking up because I had to explain turn signals to my kid today because she was piping up in the car. Like, what is this? What is this for? And I was like, this is a weird world building moment where I have to explain the culture of the, the turn signal to an eight year old. I think what I've learned from from IP work, but I would also say from fan fiction, it's really more on a, a craft level. Um, I've learned to hear and adapt voices way faster. Mm. Um, and that that really helps with my own original work. And But it also lets me pivot to to jumping onto like an IP, like just a, you know, an existing character or even fan fiction or whatever. And my wife, like my, my Star Trek fan fiction, my wife reads them and she will let me know if I hit the mark or not, <laughs> if I got the voices right. Um, but I, I think like, purely from a skill level that's something that's that's really important like when you start developing your own characters you know you, they have to they have to be unique you know, you can't repeat the same voice from character to character book to book and so being able to identify that uh, what makes those characters unique whether it's speech patterns or like when they pause or their vocabulary or their cadence or whatever um, if you can identify those in IP characters and it's so much easier at least I think because you have like a real living example and you know if you're if you're working with like film and TV stuff then you have the actor there and you can hear their voice and everything like that really helps um, produce that sort of insight when you're when you're trying to develop your own stuff i was going to say something very similar that's why i tend to do fantasy casting on my originals because then i've got this picture in my head that i can kind of work with i've got an actor's voice sometimes but yeah uh, you know if you've got the hang of 
you know, Data and his speech pattern versus Worf and his speech pattern versus the very eloquent Picard. Now, if you can get the feel for these different cadences and styles, then you can simply translate that and say, all right, what would be an equivalent to that in my original universe? What would, how would this person speak as opposed to that one? And so you start picking up those same tricks. I did much the same thing. I think what it's helped me with, aside from the kind of get there faster and skip the, you know, long form world building where you're telling yourself a story and building a world as your God <laughs> is um, it's helped me a lot with pitching because most of these projects uh, are contingent on your pitching. They don't just come to you and you, you know, automatically sign a contract and that book is nailed shut. Like you have to pitch them first. Sometimes you have to compete with other writers um, or compete with nobody just for the project where they're just trying it out, see what happens. And at first I was like slightly terrified in that sense of, Oh, I'd better get this just right from the start or they'll think that, you know, I don't know what it, what they want or that or what's good um and i would feel like very tense like you can't you can't do any good work when you're tense when you're contracted like you have to dilate and open up so i started thinking about ip as like you know being in a, a closed room so people always say like isn't that like being locked in a room writing ip and you're like yes like being locked in the room the room is like a kb toy store every toy you've ever liked is in the room and you can play with them so it's fine to be locked in a very large room full of Legos. So I started thinking of pitching, like, okay, I'm in a room full of toys, and I just, you know, well, let's grab this one, let's grab that one. What, okay, well, I'll get a Rancor here, and we'll get a Toy Lego over here, and we'll get, you know. And so I started thinking about pitching regular books that way, too. So, you know, it used to be, you know, if a, an editor says, pitch me a book, or if I have to pitch a book, too, or whatever, I would be like, okay, I have one chance to get this right, like... This is my Eminem moment to get it right. And now I'm like, oh, crap, I can send you six pitches in an hour. Like, I can just pick shit off the shelf and hand it to you. We'll be fine. So, I don't know. I appreciate the, the kind of looseness that it's given me and that you, it's going to be real hard to write IP if you can't just smack out all those pitches instead of getting really attached to one, knowing you could leave it. But then you also learn that if you have one pitch you're super, super attached to and you yep. pitch... They ask for four, and then you have one you're super attached Never to, pitch anything okay, you whatever write. the fourth one is, you're like, I'm just going to throw this in here to be done. They will pick the fourth so, one. Really? You took I've that one? And you will, like, yeah. lose all of your heart base. The other thing I've like, oh, it's similar great. is, like, if it's less about, like, for, for me at least, it, 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 I'll, I'll get so stuck up in my head trying to, like, because I'll, I'll start pitching and I'll think of these big conceptual ideas that I want to do with this character. And my editors will be like, where's the pitch? And I'm like, I'm working on it. I'm trying to get everything right. I'm trying to get everything right. And finally on their phone, they're like, where are you at this pitch? And I'll be like, oh, I don't know. It's like, right now it's just this, like, Goodfellas story with Jubilee or something like that, you know, going back to that thing. And they're like, oh, that sounds great. And I'm like... <laughs> I've been agonizing for weeks over how to tell you this. And it's like the shit post version of it that just came out of my mouth <laughs> on a phone call, like the idiot Twitter version that I just said out of panic on a phone call. And they're like, that's it. That's the tagline. That sounds dope. And I'm like, I give up. This business is nonsense. <laughs> Going back to bed. We're really getting good fellows with Jubilee now, right? Oh, I mean, I, that that's the yes. fake book I've developed for this podcast. But, I really want this. I mean, two of my favorite things, right? Two great tastes that taste great together, like peanut butter and jelly. They were meant to be together. Jubilant fellas. I mean, heck, I put Wolverine and James Bond together. I was struggling for months to come up with a Wolverine novel idea that my editor would approve. And finally someone said, well, what do you want to write? And I said, what I really want to write is a James Bond novel. They said, it's all right. So write a James Bond novel and just drop in Wolverine. So I did, and I had him go through the whole book as Logan instead of as Wolverine. 
and it worked perfectly. He did all the Bond tropes. He went to dinner at the villain's house. Uh, he was showing off like he had the man in the van talking to him through his ear. And they bring out the wine. And it turns out Logan has been around for, you know, 150 years. He's got all these enhanced senses. Who would know better about wine? He like takes one sniff and he can tell you everything. Oh, Alpine strawberries. Oh, this is the 64 Chateauneuf. I had no idea you were so decadent. There's only like, what, three cases of this left in the world? This is a heck of a party you're throwing here. And the man in the van is like, where did you learn about wine? Oh, I've been at school. It's like you just drop it the little nod to Xavier. But so I basically, yeah, sometimes you just you come up with the crazy pitch that you don't think they're going to go for. And then suddenly I realize, yeah, Take the swing. Bond. I just want to know when we're going to get Wolverine sommelier. It's the natural extension here. <laughs> but I, yeah, I had a moment the other day where I was trying to pitch something and I kept being like, it's a version of this character, of this character. And like the this character is a public domain character. So finally I was like, it's that character now. <laughs> that's who it is like yeah. alan moore would do that like <laughs> <laughs> what would alan moore do uh yeah no it's sometimes you just gotta take take the weird swing right like part of the fun of this stuff is i mean part of the part of the fun is when you reach into your toy box and you pull out wolverine and james bond at the same time and you're like well hey we've got a new game to play today that sounds awesome <laughs> You know, another thing that's difficult we haven't talked about is that with IP, quite often uh, you have signed an NDA this thick, and you're not allowed to talk uh, yeah. about anything until it is announced, um, and you can't tell anyone except for other people who are directly involved. You get in big trouble, and you have to like keep this secret for months or years. So I would love to tell you the story about the IP I'm writing right now, but I'm not allowed to. <laughs> Because it's so apropos to this discussion. I know the feeling. When I signed on as a consultant for Star Trek Prodigy, I was sure there was a sniper from CBS Viacom following me everywhere. Yeah, I always say on Twitter, like, if you get tapped to write Star Wars and you can't tell anybody, like, I'll be your unofficial Star Wars mom. You can DM me. We can talk about it. When you get terrified or scared, you can call, you can text me and we'll talk about it. But, like, it can be very uncertain when you're first writing IP and you don't, you're like, I don't know who knows. I don't know who I can talk to. I don't know who I can trust. And... You know, you're kind of terrified of your editors, so like it's nice to know that there are other people out there who are like, okay, I will, I will help you with this. Yeah, it definitely is scary because it's like, especially when you're new, sometimes you need to. And there's no, there's no, there's no set down rules anywhere for how some of this stuff works. And sometimes, like there have been a lot of people in comics that have been really helpful for me in that same way. Um, like that is that is one nice thing about uh, working at Marvel is like I'm really close friends with all the other writers in the X Men office. Like. They're, they're like also my social group because it's a pandemic and we're all, we just get on Zoom, you know? Um, and like the other writers at Marvel too, like largely they're like my friends. So like if I'm working on something and it might touch their world, I just like get on the phone or shoot an email or and say, hey, like maybe our books cross over with this thing. And um, that's really fun. Like that's something that's fun that I, I didn't expect to be able to do. Like I didn't think anyone would let me. But now that I'm like at the point where I can just be like, yeah, yeah, I want to use this guy. I'm going to write that writer. Hey, like, can Wolverine come over and play? Like, I, <laughs> like it's really, really fun to be able to, to do that because like the one of the books I'm writing now, X-Corp, is led by two characters, one named Monet and one Angel the, from the original X-Men. And uh, it's really fun to put them together because they have a lot of things in common and a lot of things that make them different. 
Uh, and that's kind of the game of it. I was saying in an interview the other day, I was like, the, sometimes the game of IP is figuring out what's new to do with it. Um, and sometimes that means taking two elements that have never touched and figuring out how to put them together, right? Like, we've never seen this guy and this guy before. That would be a weird team up. What's your perspective on it? Like, you know, that's that's back to the essay thing, right? So and so and so and so would be good together, and here is why: a five paragraph miniseries. I just want to point out that Delilah was my space auntie <laughs> when I jumped into this, <laughs> so I can totally vouch for her that she was awesome. I get so excited for people; like, I'm just so happy for them. I hope to have that problem someday. Star Trek is pretty much the same way. There's like, if you get into that fraternity of of writers, like if you get a novel contract for Star Trek and it's your first time. Uh, you sort of just get embraced by the entire community of Trek writers. It's almost like joining a secret society. Um, but, you know, it, it's really kind of just very social. Most of us tend to go to a, or used to go to a convention called Shore Leave uh, every July down in Maryland. Uh, of course, it's been disrupted two years running by the pandemic. We're hoping it'll come back one of these years. But that's a, a convention that, for whatever reason, has always been very friendly to Star Trek novelists and Star Trek fiction writers and comic writers. So they all congregate there. And so, you know, I, that was where, when I first broke in back in like 2000, I got to meet writers like Michael Jan Friedman, Peter David, uh, Robert Greenberger, Howie Weinstein, you know, guys who'd been, you know, writing novels, people like Margaret Wander Bonanno, uh, Diane Duane. And so, it just it became this family, and I, from what I've heard, it sounds like the, the uh, sort of the community of Star Wars writers is very similar, in that it's very tightly knit and very, uh, very supportive of one another. So we're coming up on our time, but before we sign off, one of the things that I know that I wanted to hear from each of you was what was one favorite or um, special moment that you got to write in the world that you write for? Um, a little gem, a little moment, um, a special spot that you just geeked over, a highlight moment from your highlight reel. Well, I've only got one official story to, to pull from, so mine's easy. <laughs> um, <laughs> my story was extremely influenced by Matthew Stover's Revenge of the Sith novelization, which is one of the greatest books ever written. It's, I, I Shout preach, out to Stover! Yeah, it's, it, it's such a good like literary fiction space opera book. It's amazing. And there's a one of the metaphors he uses in there for, for Anakin's fear is the idea of this space creature known as the Sun Dragon. And so that was wiped from canon when, when, you know, when they rebooted canon. And so I put that in my story because my story is about how Vader really still views himself as Anakin. And, um, and so that's back in canon. It's like it's on Wikipedia and everything. And uh, there was this podcast where um, I, I was on it and I told the host about this. And the host actually interviewed Stover a few months later. And so he actually read the passage to Stover and said, like, you're back in canon with this. And so that was, like, the highlight of this whole journey. Stover is the nicest dude, too. <laughs> I like Stover so much. Okay, I'll, I'll go. I've got one. Yeah, so um, when I, like I said, I got to write some Star Wars adventures for IDW. It used to be, like, very random. Uh, I think now it's more of a continuity thing with one writer, but back then it was like, you could just get an email any day that's like, we need a six-page story, we need a 12-page story, whatever. Um, so I was doing Rose Tico stories for them. I got to write two Rose Tico stories. And every time I was talking with them on the phone, I'd be like, if you guys ever need a Porg story, 
I'm like, I'm the pork girl. I got the porks right here. Come talk about porks. I'm like, I guess I bothered them enough, and they had a hole in the, the one time they're like, fine, you can have six pages. And so I was like, I want to write like a David Attenborough esque. <laughs> like, I want to define the biology of porks because I just love animals. I love writing Star Wars animals. So every book, I invent oh, as many animals as I can get away with. So I got to do this like six page comic. Um, in Star Wars Adventures where there's like porgs loose on the ship and they're describing them like David Attenborough and like there's this one thing where they talk about how porgs are like crows they like shiny stuff and they'll mess with stuff so the porg is like in the bathroom slash refresher and you know I wrote in your comic notes like you write what you want the artist to do and sometimes they do exactly what you want and sometimes you're like you know your, your idea is usually better because they know what presents better than I do um, but this time I was like you know Porg is brushing teeth with toothbrush covered with foam. Looks absolutely insane. And there's this picture of the porg holding this arm full of, like, cutlery and bathroom toiletries with its mouth covered in foam. And it's, like, running its little chubby life away, like, trying to escape from Chewie. And I was like, this is the apex of my life. Oh, it's good stuff. I guess my apex isn't quite as funny, uh, but I'm no less proud of it. Uh... In 2012, I wrote a trilogy for Star Trek called Cold Equations. And the first book of it, called The Persistence of Memory, is essentially my take on how I thought we could bring back data from how he died in Star Trek Nemesis. And I went back and I, I dug through all the canon and I rewatched all the data episodes and data and lore and Noonien's song, anything that had anything to do with data. I rewatched all of it looking for little plot holes or unanswered questions, threads that could be pulled on. And one of the things I realized, if you go back to the episode uh, called Brothers, where you know he meets up with Lore and they meet up with Noonien Sung and Lore steals the emotion chip and Noonien supposedly dies. Well, Noonien never dies on screen. We never see Noonien die. And Data comes back to the ship and he's all sort of quiet. Everybody assumes Noonien has died and they're all expressing you know their sympathies data never says that noonian died there's no on-screen evidence so i thought okay what if noonian faked his death because if you look at the uh, the trajectory of everything he did in his entire career as a cyberneticist including the fact that all of his androids look like a young version of him and then you look at everything that's been done with cybernetics and personality transfer throughout all of star trek he was clearly, because of his work with Ira Graves, who was you know the, the guy in the Schizoid Man, and it was mentioned that they were connected, it was clear that all of Noonien's work was about cheating death by eventually transferring his consciousness into one of his own androids. That has to be what he was working on the whole time. So I devised this whole story about Noonien, and mo much of the book is in first person from his point of view. He's cheated death. But he's living in secret, like his sons don't know he's out there, and he's trying to find his way back to his lost love, Juliana Tainer. And then near the end of the book, he gets word that Data has died, that Data has suffered this seemingly, you know, pointless death uh, aboard the Scimitar. And now, like any good father, he becomes manically obsessed with bringing back his son. And he tries everything. He's trying to save before. He's trying to save Data. And the moment that I love the most is at the end where he realizes the only way to save Data is to give Data the body that he made for himself. To let his own consciousness pass away and basically give this body to his son. The father dies to bring back the son. And I thought, God, this is just, this is it. And I just, I love that story. And I, I had a little homage to... Uh, 
there's a line of dialogue in the beginning of Superman, the 1978 Superman. Uh, the father becomes the son, the son becomes the father. I shall see life through your eyes. So I got to do a little homage to the 1978 Superman Jor-El, kal moment. So that that's my favorite moment that I've ever managed to get into an official Star Trek work. This is... When I started writing Excalibur, which is the Dawn of X book I'm currently writing for Marvel, it's like written 22 issues at this point i can't believe that um and uh when we were starting it and i was kind of those books were really build i like so much of what happens in in big two comics is about coming down and you know threatening things coming out threatening things and changing things and this was like really new and interesting because we got to spread out we got to kind of fertilize the ground we got to build a new nation and do so much building of things and instead of just you know destroying destroying threatening felt really good to build and part of that is in building i was going back to things that i loved that i felt like spoke to me that had been overlooked um and two of the things that i brought back that were really important to me were from two of my favorite writers um one was uh just a lot of specific uh thematic and stuff and characters from alan moore's run on captain britain with alan davis that I thought was completely incredible and it really changed the character. And like when it did, it established a lot of things that were like really just like super dense and deep and lovely. But then like it's an Alan Moore book. So he breezes over it in two pages and goes on to something else because like that's how dense his books are. Um, So uh, that was something I really wanted to do was to bring back all of his characters uh, in that story. And then also another favorite writer of mine, Neil Gaiman, had written a Marvel book called 1602, which was about how one of all these heroes we knew had come over to Virginia from England in the year 1602 and how would they be different. Um, and in that, they called the mutants witch breed, which I thought was such a great term, like it's such a great, like archaic, magical term for these powers you don't understand. So the two things I said, one, I am bringing back witch breed. If I'm writing a magic book with mutants, they're being called witch breed again. And then I also decided that I wanted to reference uh, those old comics. And then also there's, you know, a lot of these old Chris Claremont, Captain Britain comics. Um, And the really exciting thing that came of it was it kind of reinvigorated interest in the character. And so they've begun reprinting a lot of these character, this character stories, these Captain Britain stories, these characters like Saturnine and Jamie Braddock that have been out of print for a really long time because it's like, who cares about these people? And the answer is me. And I wanted to make everyone else care. Um, And it felt good that I did. Like, it felt really good to see other people being like, you know, to see like, teenagers who weren't even born when these comics were published to be like Saturnine Hive on like Twitter. I'm like, I love it. <laughs> like, I love, I, I love that. Like one of the coolest things about this to me is, is convincing people to love the things that you love. Like, like the thing that no one else thought was cool. Like I'm telling you they're cool and I'm not just going to yell at you about it. I'm going to use my craft to show awesome. you. <laughs> Those are all amazing. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you all so much. I think you've shared some just really fantastic things about what you love about IP work, what you bring of yourselves to it, and the community that grows around it. That's all, that's very inspiring, and it's so lovely to hear. And you've all been wonderful. I love your brains. Thank you for joining us. (laughs) Yes, thank you all so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us on the show. Thank you for having me. It was nice to talk to all of you.
Hi you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode will go up on May 26th, where EJ Beaton will be joining us to discuss building gender equality into your fantasy worlds. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts. <laughs> <laughs>